0: I would like to talk with you all this morning about something that we all have. Something that we all have, something that we all bring with us everywhere we go. Something that we take with us into every situation, something we take with us into every relationship, into every experience, and though we may not always feel the weight of it, there's many times that we do. I would like us to talk about this morning our expectations. We all have them. We all have expectations in life. We have expectations whenever, and I can use even as silly of an example as, we have expectations whenever we go to a restaurant, right? You expect that you'll be there, that there'll be food there. That's useful. That's useful. You'll expect that there's someone there who might cook it for you. You might even expect a server, a waiter, or waitress to bring you the food. You might expect it to be, you know, nice food but low-priced, a place to sit and enjoy it. We all have expectations. And if one of those expectations is not met, there is frustration there, right? You go to a restaurant and they say, oh, we don't have food here. There'd be some frustration, right? We all have expectations everywhere we go. And there was a mentor of mine who, in the context of him counseling me and Kezi on our our marriage, is that the distance between our expectations and our experience is frustration. Did you catch that? The distance between our expectations and our experience is frustration. Whenever we have an expectation and our experience is somewhere different than what we expected, that area that is in between those two is filled with frustration. If our our experience is close to what we expected, we have little frustration. If our experience is very far from our expectation, we have more frustration. I mean, even think about your relationships. Relationships with friends, family, for those of you who are married, there's expectations there, right? And if those expectations are not met, there is frustration now with all these different things in life that we bring our expectations to today i want us to talk about because this is true is that we is the expectations that we bring to church what are your expectations that you have for church think about that for a moment what do you expect to happen or to get out of church, I want you to genuinely think about that in your mind right now. Do you expect some dude up front talking? Do you expect the Bible to be read? Do you expect programs where different age ranges can connect with friends of similar habits and lifestyles? What do you expect from the church? The question is, are all of our expectations valid? What I would like for us to do today is I would like for us to all align our expectation to the same place, because we all come in with a wide variety of expectations. I want us to bring them all together into one place, and I want us to get our expectations from the Bible. The Scriptures give us expectations of what the church is supposed to act like and do, And many times we can have expectations that are either much bigger than what the church expects or even much smaller than what the the Bible expects the church to do. And once we understand what the Bible expects the church to do, then we can look at our own expectations and see where they align with Scripture and also where they don't. Does that make sense? So with that, Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts. Open up your Bibles, pull out your phone, do whatever you need to do to get to the Scripture. We're going to be in the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 42. And we're going to go to verse 47. And while you're turning there, allow me to provide you the context that has been happening and, and bring you up to speed in the story that is the book of Acts. And so, in the setting of this story is the city of Jerusalem. In the first century A.D., in the province of Judea, where the Jewish people are being ruled over by the Roman Empire. And in the city of Jerusalem, especially at the time of this story, there's a lot of unrest, there's a lot of confusion, there's rumors swirling. As about a month before, a month or so before the setting of the story we're about to read, there was a man that was crucified, that was killed. But it was a man unlike any other that had ever been talked about. For people claimed that this man was something very, very special. Some claimed that he was a prophet of God. Others claimed that he was a man, was, was a prophet, was a descendant of Elijah, which is a promised. Um, which is a promised thing in the Old Testament, that one day there'd be someone named Elijah who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, the Israelites. Some people even believed that this man was the Messiah and was the Son of God, something that is unlike anything else that humanity had ever seen before. But for the normal person in Jerusalem, many of these were rumors, for they all knew that the man named Jesus had died, though some had believed that he didn't stay dead. Some had believed that he had risen from the dead, miraculously. But for the average person in Jerusalem, these were mainly rumors. And on this particular day where the story finds itself, these, there would have been, a, unlike any other day, it was... Um, it was people walking about their day, you know, going to markets, doing chores, working, doing their different things. And on a street like every other street, in a second story building, unlike, just like any other building, there came something very special. If people were walking on the streets, imagine yourself in this situation. You're walking in the streets of Jerusalem, and unlike any other building, There's a second story where the windows seem to be bringing out this really bright light. So bright that you can't even look at it. It's it's as bright as the sun, and there seems to be a wind that is coming, not from around you, but from in the building. There's this swirling wind that's happening, and there's this light that's exuding. And it seems like inside this building, there's people who are yelling and screaming, but not just yelling and screaming out of pray out of out of pain, but out of praise, out of a love and a worship. And these people are yelling and screaming in languages that, that you may that the average person at the time may have known. Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. But also languages that they may not have known. Persian, Akkadian, Arabic, Ugaric, all these different places all around this area. These languages that that that, that were very uncommon but that people spoke. Obviously, you can imagine a crowd was forming and saying, what is going on in this building? Out of the building came normal people for the time, and it might have caused people in the crowd to say, what? how do these normal people, these normal Jewish men and women, know these different languages? You might have heard someone in the crowd make a joke and say, well, maybe they're intoxicated or filled with wine. And then you see one of the men among the group stand up among the rest and, and, and speak out to the crowd and say, Brothers of Jerusalem, we are not filled with wine, for you are witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And, the, and then from that point, the apostle Peter shared a powerful message about the man named Jesus Whom the rumors had been talking about, and how they were not rumors at all, but it was an actual fact that this man named Jesus was sent by God, completely man and completely God. The Son of God came to earth, lived a life, and died a perfect death for the sins of the world. And the people there that were listening to this, by some power unrecognizable to man, were torn apart. And were convicted of it and, and, and didn't know what to do. They knew of their problems of sin, for, their po- for the price of sin is high. And they said, what do we do with this? And the, the apostle Peter said, repent, be baptized, believe in the Lord Jesus, and receive the power of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. And at this point, hundreds of thousands of people came forward and had repented and and turned away from their sins and believed that Jesus Christ had come to forgive them their sins. And they came to these apostles and thus began what you could imagine would be hours of just a small group of believers baptizing thousands of people. Thousands of people. One could imagine it took hours. One could imagine it even took the entire day. And then, after the busyness of the day, When the people went home, one could almost imagine the apostles sitting around together for a meal and and celebrating what God had done, celebrating the power of God revealing himself in the church that Jesus had promised, had started. And they're all sitting there and they're laughing and then there comes a break in the conversation and one of them looks and says, well, now what do we do? Think about that for a second. Well, now what do you do? God promised a church would come and the church came. Now what? Put yourself in their shoes. What would you do? What would you do with this new thing called the church? What decisions would you make? This passage in scripture answers that question. And we'll start reading in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 in 43 please read along with me it says this and the believers devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles simple question simple answer right the apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Those are all words that, that in your own life experience you may have heard at different points. But what do those actually mean? What does it actually mean to have fellowship? What does, it actually, what does the breaking of bread even mean? What does the apostles' teaching mean? What does prayers even mean? Let's break them down for a moment. The apostles' teaching. We'll start there. As the believers might have come back the next day and said, so what do we do now? The apostles said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to open up the Word of God, and we're going to study the Word of God. In the time, the the Word of God was the Old Testament, what we might have in our modern Bibles called the Old Testament. And the Old Testament told the story of God using the people of Israel to be able to bring about the Messiah who would save the world from its sins. And so the apostles would have gathered the people together and read from the Old Testament and shared about how the Old Testament points to a future Messiah. And they would have read through the Old Testament and studied the Old Testament and, and, for lack of a better term, done Bible studies, talked about it. What does this passage mean? What does that passage mean? What does Isaiah mean when he's saying this? The apostles' teaching. After that was the fellowship. If you've been in any sort of church, you've heard the word fellowship. And if I were to ask what a simple definition of fellowship would be, perhaps you might say, well, it's, it's like being in relationships. It's being in community, right? It's being, it's, you know, it's being friends with each other. Well, I wouldn't disagree with you. I'd say, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's, that's the general gist of it. I think it goes a step beyond that. I think that fellowship goes a step beyond just being friends. The word fellowship literally means becoming one. To become one. Anybody can have friendships with anybody. That's something that the world does. That's something that everybody does. That's normal. But fellowship is something that is unique to people who believe in God. Fellowship is this coming together, this becoming one, this action of such intimate and deep friendship that you, are, you, don't, you know more about the person than just simply where they work and how work's going. You talk to them more than just simply saying good morning in a passing conversation, and they reply with good morning. You know, we, we as a church, we try to come up with these different ways to achieve fellowship. We have our, our coffee social hours. I love coffee. We have our coffee social hours, and that's not a bad thing. We have our, our, our little pizza parties or hot dog events or whatever, and I, I've had my fair share of pizza parties. But to achieve fellowship is nothing that the church can artificially manufacture, but it's something that can only come through believers coming together and knowing each other on a much deeper, intimate level, learning about your flaws, learning about the difficulties in life, learning about your experiences, learning from each other. A word that, I might, that we might be able to use to describe fellowship as bonding, literally bonding, coming together. So the first few things the church did was teaching and bonding. The next thing it says is they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Breaking of bread, food, that's great, they had meals together. It's not wrong, but it's deeper than that. Breaking of bread in the Bible is, used, is a phrase used to signify something that we call communion. And communion, we're going to be practicing communion today. But for those of you who have heard the word communion and heard about all this sort of stuff but don't really know what it is, allow me to explain it. Communion is, is something that, that Christ commanded the church to do as a way to remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave for the sins of the world. And many times, the way that it's done, shown in the Bible is that there is a piece of bread and there is a cup of, of wine, or we might use grape juice. But there is the bread and the cup, and the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ who was torn apart and was shredded and whose bones were broken for the sake of our sins. And the cup was used to resemble the blood of of Jesus Christ that was was, was spilled because of his wounds of being whipped, beaten, and flogged for your sins and for mine. And how every time we can take communion, we remember, remember the sacrifice that God gave for us. Remembering. Breaking of bread is remembering. So we have teaching, we have bonding, we have remembering. And then finally, it says in the prayers. Prayers, you know, you pray. Praying is more than just genie in a bottle, ask God for whatever you want. Prayer is a conversation. Prayer is a relationship that we have with God, where we can go to God at any point in life and not just ask him for things that we want, but share our difficulties with God. It's keeping communication open between us and God. When we believe in God, we have the ability to have a relationship with God, and that relationship requires communication. And prayer is our way to have communication with God, whether it's asking God to help a family member or even just telling God about your day and thanking him for your day. That's what prayer is. I might use the word sharing when I think of prayer. Us sharing with God in communication, in a relationship. So when we look at these four actions the church did, we can break them down to teaching, to bonding, to remembering, and to sharing. If you're taking notes, write those four words down. Because when we look at what scripture reveals to us that the church does, it all comes back to these four words, teaching, bonding, remembering, and sharing. And if we are doing those four things properly, then we are fulfilling the expectations that God has given to us in scripture. Now, what was the result of this? This was an idea. The, the, the apostle said, we're going to try this. We're going to see how this goes. And what happened as a result of it? Well that was shown in verse 43 where it says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's interesting, the apostles said, we're gonna try this and see how it goes. And then God begins to use that and show miraculous power through wonders and signs. Wonders and signs is words for, for miracles, doing miracles, perhaps even healing people. Um, restoring blindness, things like that. Wonders and signs were being done as a result of what the church was doing. God was using what the church was doing to reveal his power. You see that? This is what God wants the church to do. How much more evidence do we need than when the church does something and God says, I'm using that. We're rolling with this. Let's go. Teaching, bonding, remembering, and sharing. Sharing. And as we look through the rest of this passage, find the different ways that the rest of the things that the church does comes back to these four things. Because the church, for the rest of the passage we're studying today, does these four things. And they can all come back to these four things. Every single action they do is with the goal of these four things that they are doing together. Let's continue on and see some of the other ways that the church acted starting out And next, we're going to read verses 44 and 45. Would you read them with me, please? And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Stop. I feel like for a lot of Christians, particularly Christians who might live in the United States, these two verses might give a little bit of anxiety and say, oh, something doesn't, something sounds off here. You see, every, and I say that because every single book I read about this passage, every single sermon I listen to about this passage, every single commentary I use to study these verses, All of them, without excuse, I'm not lying to you, without excuse, all of them make sure to mention and say that they do not think these verses require what might be a trigger word for some, but is called socialism. It's a form of government. Um, You might have heard of it. It's where the the different materials of people are distributed evenly among all peoples. That's something that's happening in Scripture here. But all of the commentaries meant... Moved out of their way to say that's not what this verse is talking about. I just found that interesting. I don't know what that means or I don't know what the implication of that is, but I found that to be interesting. But look at what they're doing. Think about what they're doing. They were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needs, which, by the way, they're bonding, they're sharing. Are they not? Did those come back to verse 42? One could even suggest they're teaching and showing how to be generous, and they're remembering the generosity of Christ who died for their sins. See how it's all coming back? There was this radical, beautiful, powerful generosity that was one of the first things that happened in the early church. And it's this thing where there, was, there must have been rich Christians and poor Christians and people that looked all sorts of different from each other. But in the very beginnings of the church, everyone was on the same playing field. Those who might have been richer got rid of all of their stuff and gave it to some of their brothers and sisters who were poor and didn't have enough to eat or to drink. They were being incredibly generous and saying, we're all in this together, guys. We're all going to do this. It's a beautiful sight, truly. But then some of you might be asking the question, so then, do I need to sell all my stuff? Like, I can't have my car? Can't have my house? Can't have any of this stuff? And while while I would make the suggestion, I don't think that this passage is saying that we all need to sell everything that we have. I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. It's not requiring that. You know, the main point here is generosity. You know, it's not requiring you to get rid of your car or your insurance or whatever else. But I would make the suggestion that when all of you or all of us heard me say that, say, I don't think this is that the Bible is commanding us to sell off our possessions, how many of us in this room or listening online breathed a sigh of relief and said, Whew. Thank God I don't have to sell all my stuff. Thank goodness I don't have to get rid of my stuff and give it to the poor. Think about that for a moment. What does that tell us about the control that our material possessions have over us? Where we say, Thank goodness I don't have to get rid of all of my things. I'm not making judgments on others, but what I'm suggesting is if that was your reaction, if your reaction was a sign of relief and whew, dodged one there, think about ways that your stuff might be controlling you. Think about ways that your stuff might have ownership over you instead of you having ownership over your stuff. Perhaps even think of or find ways to be generous to give some of that stuff up because it's not your stuff. it's stuff that God has provided for you to have, for you to use to bring honor and glory to him. So that's one of the things the church was doing is generosity was incredible in the early church. And then we continue to some of the things the church did on a day-by-day basis. verses 46 in the early part of verse 47. Read with me. And day by day, attending the temple together and bringing bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Okay. On a day-by-day basis, every day, They were doing two things. They were meeting in the temple, and they were gathering together in their homes, right? The temple. What do I mean by the temple? In the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites to build a temple in the city of Jerusalem. And this temple signified and was the place where God brought his spirit to dwell in, so that when the Israelites would worship God by going to the temple, they would be in the presence of the spirit of God. That was their way to connect with God, a way for them to connect with God. On, at the point where the, um, actually just before this story on the day of Pentecost, which was what I talked about with the bright lights and the swirling winds and all that sort of stuff, from that point on, God's presence is given in a different way. Whereas in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God's presence was brought in the temple. In the New Testament, God's presence, God's spirit is brought into the bodies of every Christian. If you are a Christian, if you have been repented of your sins and believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you in a way that we can't fully understand. You know, it's not a ghost possession, like a, like a spirit possession of you, like those creepy movies, but it's, this, it's, it's, it's the Spirit of God resting on you as if you are a temple of God. And God lives in you, God guides you, God helps you through your day-to-day life. But still, the Christians at that time found the ability to go to the temple. It was still teaching the Old Testament, which was their Bible, which was their Word of God. The New Testament wasn't around at that point. They were still able to go to the Old Testament, or the the temple, listen to the teachings there of the Old Testament, and pray and worship God there. By the way, teaching, right? They're bonding there, they're coming together corporately. They're remembering, they're looking in the Old Testament and remembering how God designed um, the acts of history to bring about the Messiah at that particular place and time. And they were sharing and praying with, to God together and individually at the temple. And just as an aside, they had an amazing opportunity at that place to share their faith of the new, of the, of the Messiah Returning and coming as a man, Christ Jesus, to the other Jews that were there. Think about that is that other Jews who did not believe in the Messiah were there and they were able to be there, read the same scriptures, talk about the same God, but talk about the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the man, Jesus Christ. What an amazing outreach opportunity. Their corporate gathering became an outreach opportunity. Think about that. It's beautiful. And then at the same time, they gathered in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They hung out with each other. They had dinner with each other. They had meals with each other. They were meeting in their homes. Your homes. Think of your homes. Your homes are in some ways the most intimate, one of the most intimate places that you have. Your home is the place where you go to every day, where you sleep every day, where you eat at, where you spend time with your family. It's a very intimate place. It's a personal place. It's your home. Whereas the early Christians said, this is my home. And guess what? You're coming here. Come into my home be with me, be in my life with me, and vice versa. There's so much power to us opening the doors of our home and allowing people to come and spend time in our homes with us. I feel like many times we as Christians are able to leave church and leave the commands that God has given us in these four walls. We're able to leave them for Sunday mornings and sometimes for Wednesday nights. And as we leave this building The word of God doesn't even get past the doors. But God here is showing how these Christians took the truths they learned in the temple corporately, together, and they brought it into their homes. And they had meals together. And it says they were praising God together. Which, by the way, they're bonding. They're sharing. They're praying together. They're remembering God's generosity to them. They're teaching about the commandments of God together. They're praising him. There's so much power in your homes. As long as I've been the student pastor here for a little less than a year, whenever our youth leaders are meeting together, I specifically have been trying to make sure that we don't meet in the church building, but that we meet at homes we meet at some of the homes of the youth leaders or, or wherever else we can go, but not meeting in the church building. The reason I do that, and I've been trying to make sure that happens, is that that allows us to be able to be a part of each other's lives. A few months ago, we were able to go to the Lindsley's house, Larry and Claudia's place. Have you ever been there? It's awesome. They have a beautiful backyard there. They have a pond out there called Lake Claudia. Guess who made it? It's a beautiful, beautiful place. They have a a little dog there that Larry tolerates but says he likes sometimes. We got to be a part of their life. They showed us their house. They showed us the things that they love there. I got to learn something about Larry and Claudia there that I would not have learned or would not have been able to connect with if I hadn't gone to their homes. Another example, we were able to go to the Funds place. John and Katie, if you haven't met them, they're wonderful people. But John and Katie Fund, they, we've been able to be in their home. And they have a beautiful home, too. We live, we, we, we get to eat together in their living room. And we get, to, we get to hang out together. And Katie makes the best chocolate chip cookies ever. They're awesome. I want more of them. But that's something I wouldn't know if I wasn't there. And their son, Jack, runs around as well, and he's a part of our meetings. He sits right there with us, and he gets to be a part, and I get to learn about him. He's one of my best buds. It's great. That is the power of our homes, and ever since that's happened, our leaders are looking a lot more like a family. We know each other better. We even just like each other more. And that could only happen through us using our homes. How are you using your homes for the kingdom of God? How are you using it? Because I keep saying it's your home. And um, and on a worldly level, it's your home. You signed whatever. But it's not your home. God gave it to you. It's a gift from him. And it's something to be used for his glory. How can you use your home for God's kingdom? And so here's a lot of different things the church did starting out. But what was the result of that? What was the result of the four different categories here of teaching, bonding, sharing, remembering? What happened because of that? Well, we get that in verse 47. Where it says that they were praising God having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The church starting out was very, very busy and was together and was doing these different things. The apostles said, we're going to try this and see how it goes. And the church jumped into it and they took part in it and they learned about each other and they grew closer together. And guess what? God used that. God used that in a special way, and that way was to bring people to salvation. People were being saved. There were people around town who were seeing the love of these Christians and saying, what is it with you guys? Who are you people? And they could say that they believed in a love that came from God that revealed himself through Jesus Christ who has died for my sins and for yours. And if you repent of your sins and believe in that, then you too can be saved. And think about this, people are being saved day by day. Every single day, God was using the actions of these Christians to bring salvation to people in their community. How wonderful is that? Every day a new soul was saved. Every day a new person had a relationship with with their Creator God. I don't know about you, but that's exciting. That's exciting to me. And, the, and the, the beautiful part is that God can do the same thing here in Calvary Baptist Church, in Battle Creek, Michigan, in the United States of America, in the whole world. God can use our faithfulness to bring people to salvation day by day. These are the expectations given to us by scripture. And as I close, I want to bring all that together. All the different actions from that passage boil down to teaching, bonding, remembering, and sharing. And when we look at this passage, these are the expectations that the word of God has Remember what I said earlier? Look at your own expectations. Are your expectations a part of these four things? Are they? If they are, then great. Let's do them together. Let's go do it, guys. But if they're not, they may not be bad expectations, but they are not what the Bible says commands the church to be, which means they have to be held with an open palm. They have to be, because they are not necessary according to what God has commanded us. And guys, as we look at those expectations, and we can even look at our own church, one of my challenges for you is to go home and to to think, even with your, your family, is our church teaching? Is our church bonding is our church remembering? Is our church sharing? And as a result of this, God using that to bring people to salvation. Is that what's happening? I want you to be able to answer that question for yourself. Do you see teaching? Do you see bonding? Do you see remembering? Do you see sharing? And if you do, then great. Let's keep doing it. But if you don't, the best response can be, we're missing out on this. How can I help? How can I help make sure we're doing this? Our leaders, our deacons and pastors are continuing to go through and work through a lot of transition details. And I encourage you to continue to pray for them. Pray for us. We need it. But these are, this is information that if we're falling short on one of these things, we want to know. And I pray that it would come from a heart of, this is what's missing, how can I help? Because it's easy to just say, you need to do this better, right? It's a lot harder to say, this is falling, this is failing, what can I do? And as we move through our transition, this is a beautiful time for us to examine the effectiveness of our church in these four categories. And how God could use us in these four areas in order to do what scripture nothing else, what scripture commands us to do so that we might be a church that God uses to work in miraculous ways to bring people to salvation in the city of Battle Creek, Michigan so that God may be glorified and we can worship him for more and more each and every day.